For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. That's God's word. You may be seated. Um, now, I don't do this very often, but just, just for fun, here's what I want you to do. I want to ask you a question, and I want you to think about it for a minute. Not even a minute. I'm not going to give you that long. Just first reaction. And then I want you to turn to someone next to you and, and tell them what you, what you think. And again, you can be wrong. You can be right. Just whatever, whatever first kind of comes to mind. Um, but think about this question and then turn to someone and tell them what you think about it. Here's the question. Is Christianity complex or simple? Is Christianity complex or simple? All right, 30 seconds, go. even take 30 seconds. That was amazing. All right, so show of hands, how many of you think Christianity is complex? Okay, decent number of you. How many of you, th- show of hands, think Christianity is simple? Okay, more of you. How many of you will, no matter what, never raise your hand? Okay, a few of you. Great. So uh, there were plenty of people here thought Christianity is complex, a little more that thought it's simple. Um, I think there's really truth to both, and I think you're going to see that actually a little bit today, even in this sermon. Uh, This message and this passage actually really kind of starts out a little bit complex and then gets really simple. And in fact, this passage has one of the simplest, clearest, uh, you could call it a gospel in a nutshell. The message of Christianity in a nutshell is right here in this passage and uh, should be really good for us to see. So we're going to work through this, through this text. Let me just remind you a little bit of where you, we've been in case you've uh, been out from us or maybe you're, maybe you're new, uh, a little bit of where we've been. In this section, in Romans 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul here is, is talking about the future of the nation of Israel. The reality is that God's chosen people, many of them had rejected, uh, had rejected Christ, were not walking close to God, and if they were to die in that condition, would be uh, lost would go to hell. And Paul's been interacting about why, why is that? What, what happened? And, and in last week's passage, uh, what we saw was that the reason for this is that they were trying to earn righteousness. They were trying to earn a right standing before God. They were trying to be okay with God on the basis of their works rather than on the basis of faith. Let's take a look at that just to refresh our memory here. Look back to Romans chapter 9, verse 30. He says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness by faith. 
but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. So you get it? The, the Gentiles weren't looking to be made right with God, and yet they were because of faith. The Jews were looking to be made right with God, but they tried to do it by their own works, and so they didn't get it. Verse uh, 32. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. And then uh, Paul goes into this a little bit more in chapter 10, verse 3. He says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So, so what we saw last week was this continual contrast between trying to be made right with God by your own works and trying to be made right with God just by trusting what he has done for you in Christ. We're going to see that theme continue in this passage. And, and the reason why uh, we just know, I mean, there, there was a definitive statement last week that said it's not by works, it's by, it's by what Christ has done. And, and that definitive statement is in chapter 10, verse 4. Look at that. Chapter 10, verse 4, he said, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The law here is shorthand for works. It's shorthand for earning your way to God, right? And Christ is the end of that, right? Jesus Christ is the only one who lived perfectly, and therefore, he fulfilled the law. You can't do it. He did. He, therefore, is the, the termination, the end, the goal, the fulfillment of, of that law. And now Paul is going to explain this a little bit more here in today's passage. And in today's passage, uh, really there's a key word that we see a number of times that kind of triggers us to what he's really talking about. What is it that you experience not by works, but by faith? And the answer is salvation. What were the Jews missing that the Gentiles were getting? Salvation. And so we're going to focus today on salvation. And here's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about what salvation is, what, how salvation comes, what salvation promises, and who salvation is for. What it is, how it comes, what it promises, and who it's for. We're going to see all of that here in this passage. So first thing, what salvation is. Uh, there's a word here uh, used a number of times in this passage. The word is saved. Uh, perhaps you've had someone ask you before, hey, you saved you gotten saved, right? If you ever had a family member that recently came to faith in Christ, they might come to you and go, have you gotten saved? You need to get saved, right? Or maybe you grew up in a church tradition where saved was like a three-syllable word, right? You can get saved if, if you believe in Jesus, right? Or that kind of thing. You've heard saved, you know, oh, what does that mean? Well, saved is a biblical word. It shows up in this passage a number of times. Let me show you. Chapter 10, verse 1. Paul said, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Saved. What does this word mean? Salvation is just another way to describe this. It, saved means to be preserved to be rescued, to be delivered. One of the things that we, we hear and experience in our city all the time has to do with people that wander into pools who can't swim. And it's tragic when you look at the statistics, when you hear the stories. And just looking up some research this year, in 2014 there have been 31 drowning incidents in Phoenix. Uh, fortunately, 
there have only been 10 people who died from it. Four adults, uh, or six kids. But interestingly, I thought it was interesting that they track the number of incidents. Now, I don't know exactly what goes into be, being an incident. My guess is if someone falls in the pool and the police are called or uh, paramedics are called or 911 is called or, or something happens, it registers as an incident. So 31 drowning incidents but only 10 fatalities, which means there were 21 people saved. There were 21 people preserved. There are 21 people that are still breathing air and living They didn't die. And the reality that the Scripture declares and that Paul has said all through Romans uh, as a whole is that we need to be saved. We are drowning in sin. It will lead us to death. And let me just describe sin as Paul has described it here in this book. In Romans chapter 1, he said that, that all of us have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We've worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator. So anytime you've loved anything more than you've loved God, you've sinned. And that's a pervasive condition. We all have it because in Romans 3, he said, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one who does good. No one seeks for God. No one understands, not even one. There's a consequence of that. In Romans 6, 23, he says that the wages of sin is death. So we are dying in our sin unless we are saved, unless we are rescued, unless we are delivered. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is life in Christ Jesus, eternal life. And so this is what this passage really relates to, is is how do you get saved? How does it happen? So that's what salvation is. Second is, how does it come? How does a person get saved? Rescued. How does a person get saved? And again, in this context, Paul has been comparing repeatedly efforts to get saved by your own works and efforts to get saved just on the basis of trusting Christ. It's not even efforts. It's just, it's just faith in Jesus. So it's believing I can do the work or Jesus did the work. So, so just imagine it this way. Imagine you die, and when you die, you get sent into a waiting room. Now, this is not how it will work. But just imagine for a second. And you get sent into a waiting room, and they come to you with a clipboard, and they say, all right, uh, this is your eternity entrance exam. All right, here's what we'd like you to do. We would like you to write everything you've ever done, good and bad, on this page. you got as much time as you need. We'll be here a while. And, uh, and because it's, you know, because it's at the pearly gates, you have, you know, now the ability to remember everything. And so, and so hey, just go ahead and write that down. And, and you do that. And you sort of write down all the good and write down all the bad. And you're going, man, this is a little bit scary. There's a lot more bad when it comes to, especially when it, if you count my thoughts and you count my attitudes and you count the things I love and you count sort of the secret times I wished for that person. Yes, they got creamed and that's wonderful. And, and I hate the Raiders and all this sort of stuff that you might, that's actually, that would be on your good column was hating the Raiders. But you write it all out and you finish that test and, and you're like, okay, well, I'm going to turn it in. And right before you turn it in, Jesus stops you. And he says, hey, I filled out the test too. And if you want to, you can turn mine in. And it'll count for you. What do you do in that moment? You say, thank you, Jesus. And you turn in his test, right? But, but, but here's the thing. Many people don't do that. 
That's Paul's whole point. Many people are going, you know what, I think I got this. I don't need Jesus. I'll, I'll turn in mine. It's fine. The good outweighs the bad. Or they'll say, you know what, Jesus, could I, could I borrow a couple answers from your test to just sort of supplement my test? And that's the way of works. That's the way of law. That's the way of going, well, it's really my righteousness versus saying, I'm going to take Jesus' righteousness. And that's what Paul has been comparing in this whole passage, and he continues it in, in verses 5 uh, through, through 10. All right, so, so how does salvation come? Does it come by works? Does it come by your own ability to keep the rules? Or does it come by faith in what Christ has done? Well, how do you know? Because if you look at the Bible... There are some places in the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament, that seem to say that you can have eternal life based on what you do. They seem to say that based on the works you do, you can have eternal life. And Paul actually is going to quote one of those. And, and, and so let's take a look at that. In, in chapter 10, verse 5, he, he says this, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, Moses here is quoting a passage of Scripture, right? Because you go, well, how did people get this idea that you could earn your way to heaven or you could do a bunch of good and then God would accept you? Where where did that come from? Well, they thought it was coming from the Scripture. So Paul quotes that, Leviticus 18.5. Here's what it says. This is Moses writing. He says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules if a person does them, he shall live by them. I'm the Lord. There it is. It's Scripture. If you do my commandments, you'll live. You'll have eternal life. Right? And this verse, Leviticus 18.5, for the Jews was very well known. It was, it was very commonly referred to. It was kind of a slogan. If you keep the commands, you'll live. Right? You could say it this way. If I obey, then God will accept me. And that is the way of religion. And, and, and yet, that comes from the Bible. And Paul is saying, that's not the way to do it. Well, why not? What, what's Paul's answer? Well, we get a little bit of a clue from it because there's another passage that Paul uses this exact same verse. Where Paul also, there's two places in the Bible he quotes Leviticus 18.5. One is here in Romans 10. The other one is in Galatians 3. And it's a similar kind of context. Here's what he says in Galatians 3. He says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Get what he's saying? You you try to do it your way, you try to turn in your test with just your stuff, you're under a curse. Why? All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, and then here he quotes Leviticus 18.5, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So, so here's what Paul's saying. Get this. Paul is saying it can't be by works of the law because if you say the one who does them will live by them, here's the problem. You haven't done it perfectly. Because, the scripture also says, cursed is everyone who doesn't abide by all things written in the law. So if you want to go the law version, if you want to go by your your test version, then it better have nothing bad on it. Because if it has anything bad, 
you're out. That's what Paul's saying. That's, so Paul's saying, you want works of the law? Here you go. You can't do it. And some might go, well, gosh, but, but Paul, you're, are you refuting Moses? I mean, it seems like Moses thought you could do it. See, I mean, Moses said there, if you do it, you'll live by them. Paul, would he, I mean, this was especially a criticism that Paul got as he interacted with Jews, where they would go, Paul, you, you, think, you think you're smarter than Moses? Really? And so Paul does something very, very interesting. In the next couple of verses, what Paul does is he uses Moses to refute Moses. He, he uses Moses to actually show that though Moses said, if you do them, you'll live by them, Moses never believed that was really possible. And Moses' writing points to this reality that you would need God to come near you in, by grace, through faith, if you were going to have any hope at all. And so that's where Paul begins to go. And so in, in verse 6, he starts to quote from a couple of different places. Here's what he says in verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Now here, get this, and, and this is the part I told you was complex, okay? So track with this a little bit. Paul is, is quoting here, he has two kind of quotes from Deuteronomy in mind, okay? The first one we see from the phrase, do not say in your heart. This is a reference to Deuteronomy 9, and in Deuteronomy 9, God has told the people, he said, listen, when you get into the promised land that I've promised you, and you start succeeding there, be careful, because you're going to get filled up with pride. You're going to think you did something special, and you didn't. All right? So here's, here's what Deuteronomy 9.4 says. Do not say in your heart, right? That's what Paul quotes, trying to bring this story to mind. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord is driving them out before you. So in Deuteronomy, God's going, listen. Don't say in your heart, wow, I'm really something, because you're not. And so when Paul says, do not say in your heart, he's, he's, he's referencing that. Now, the second passage that he's referencing is Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 to 14. That's the next place that Paul is, is referencing. So these various quotes here, where it says, who will ascend into heaven, who will descend into the abyss, uh, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, those are all quotes from Deuteronomy 30, Verses 11 to 14. Now, in order to understand, so you tracking with me so far? So Paul has said, what Moses said about, about if you can obey it, then you'll be okay. Moses didn't believe that. Okay, Paul, well, how do you know? Okay, first answer, because Moses wrote about, don't think it's because you're righteous. Second answer, Deuteronomy 30. Well, if you go back into Deuteronomy, and, and you can turn there if you want to, it's really up to you. Uh, but Deuteronomy 30, if you actually, you actually kind of have to go back before that a little bit to understand the, the story of what's going on here. Uh, the whole book of Deuteronomy, essentially, just so you know this, is, is Moses telling the, the second generation that, had, that was about to enter the promised land, re-educating them about the law. The word Deuteronomy means second law. I'm telling you again. And so he has been telling them uh, the law in different ways, 
And in, in chapter 27 of, of Deuteronomy, there's a real interesting picture that God gives as he instructs the people. Here's what he tells them. He says, all right, I want you to assemble between Mount Gerizim, which means blessing, and Mount Ebal, which means cursing. And I want you to gather in the valley there. So I want to get all the people in the valley between cursing, between, between Mount Gerizim, blessing, and Mount Ebal, death. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to write the words of the law on Mount Ebal. That's a clue, isn't it? The words of the law, he has them write on the Mount of Cursing. Why? Because he knows that if they try to keep the law, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in it, right? So he says, okay, write it on Mount Ebal. Then you get chapter 28 of Deuteronomy. And in chapter 28, they read out from these mountains the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. Just to give you a picture of this, there is way more curses than blessings. Okay? Uh, The blessings go from uh, verses 1 to 14. The curses go from verse 15 to verse 68. All right? 14 verses of, of blessing, 50 verses of cursing, right? This is not good. And, and Moses just knows this is, why is it that way? Be, because Moses knows you're not going to be able to do it. And Moses gives an answer to why they're not going to be able to do it. Actually, in, in Deuteronomy 29, verse 4, I, I'm building up to the part that, that Paul quotes from, all right? 29, verse 4, Moses says this, but to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see, or ears to hear. Moses is going, listen, I'm going to tell you all this stuff to do, but it's not going to go well for you. Because cursed is everyone who doesn't abide by all things written in the law and do them. And, and your heart, God hasn't opened it. It's cold. It's dead. So Moses doesn't expect a lot. Well, in chapter 30, he begins a, a section of prophecy. He begins to say, uh, here, here's what's, here's what's going to happen. And in and, and Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, he says, When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, get this, he doesn't say if they come upon you. right? Moses isn't going, you know what, I think there's a pretty good chance you could keep this. He goes, no, when this happens, the blessings for a little while and the curses for a long time, here's what's going to happen. You are going to be exiled to a different country. You're going to be sent off. All the curses are going to take place, and you're going to be sent off. And in fact, that happens many years later as they go to Assyria and they go to Babylon. And they're exiled. And Moses says, you're going to have a a time when, when, well, here's what he says. You'll call to mind all the nations where the Lord has driven you, and you'll return to the Lord your God and to your children to obey his voice. He's saying there's a, a new time coming, and he begins to prophesy about a new covenant and a new thing that God would do. And then here's what he says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. He's saying, listen, the day's going to come when after all this curses for all your disobedience and God gets your attention, he's going to give you something he's never given you before. A new heart. A new heart that, that wants to obey him, that wants to serve him. 
This is the context of of where Paul is going to quote from here in Deuteronomy 30. And then just a few verses later in, in verse 11, this is the quote that Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy 30, starting in verse 11. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. Well, how can Moses say it's not too hard, right? He just said, here's all the stuff that you're not going to be able to do. Well, because he, he has in mind here this new covenant promise. This new covenant, this new promise of God to give a new heart is going to make it where this is much more doable. Right? Verse 12. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us to bring it to us that we may hear and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. And that's what Paul quotes from. Paul is saying, listen, Moses knew that in order for you to have righteousness, God would have to come near. It's not about all that you can do for God. It's not you saying, I need to go to heaven. Because listen, Jesus came down. Jesus in the incarnation, Jesus at Christmas came near. And it's not you going, I'm going to cross the sea. I'm going to go into the abyss. I'm going to go into the unknown and, and, and bring Christ to me. No, because Christ has come out of the abyss through the resurrection. God has come near to you. And so Paul is saying, listen, I know you're attached to Moses, and I know you're attached to this idea that if I obey, then I'll be accepted. But Moses didn't even believe that was possible. And so the message we're proclaiming to you, as he says uh, back, back to Romans, the message, verse 8, what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That's the word of faith we proclaim. What I'm telling you, he says, is that Moses was pointing to Jesus. Moses was pointing to someone that was going to come near to you and save you in a way that you couldn't do by yourself. So that's all the complex part. That's all the background. And I think that matters because it would have mattered to Paul's audience. I know we're not Jews wrestling with these same questions, but, but it would have mattered to them. But then Paul gets it really, really simple says, listen, God has some come so near to you that he's put his word in your mouth and in your heart. Verse 9, this is as simple as it gets. By the way, let me just tell you this about verse 9. I, I, one of the reasons I love this verse is my high school baseball coach is a guy named Mark Johnson. We call him Coach J. And uh, some of you know Tyler Johnson, one of the pastors at Redemption, and Mark is Tyler's dad. And uh, one time Coach J went to a, a Broncos game and at the end of the game, as he was going to, to get back in his car, get on the bus or whatever he was doing, he saw someone holding a sign. And the sign just said, Romans 10.9. Didn't have it written out. It just said the reference, Romans 10.9. He went, huh, I've seen John 3.16 before. What does that mean? And, and he, was not yet, he wasn't yet a Christian. So he sees this sign, and he gets in his car, and he gets home, and he opens a Bible, and he looks up Romans 10.9. Here's what he read. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And Coach Jay got on his knees in the simplicity of that gospel message and said, I'm going to trust Christ. 
changed his life. Now get this. He didn't know all that Deuteronomy 30 stuff. He didn't understand all the argument that was happening between Paul and his opponents. He didn't get all that. But he could read that and go, I get that. How, how does a person get saved? Is it by being really good? Is it by trying really hard? No. It's by confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believing in your heart God raised him from the dead, you're saved. Now that idea, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, these are parallel kind of ideas. We don't want to slice and dice them too far, but I think there's a few things that are instructive just even about that, that phrasing. The idea of confessing with your mouth is that you are making a statement. What's the statement? Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Master. Jesus is King. Now, that would have been especially controversial in this day because Caesar said that he was Lord. And so the mantra of the early church was, Jesus is Lord, as a contrast to Caesar. But confess with your mouth. There's a, there's a public aspect to this, that you are unashamed of your allegiance to King Jesus. Now, isn't it interesting, as you just think about our culture, one of, the, one of the dynamics going on in our culture is that the culture at large wants uh, people of faith to keep that private. They'll say, it's fine that you believe what you believe, just keep that private. You know, churches can do what, you know, they can worship, but that's it. And as long as your faith doesn't influence your work or doesn't influence the things you say to people or doesn't influence your political perspective, that's fine. You can have it. Just keep it to yourself. Why do they want to do that to people of faith? Because if your faith is just private, it's small and it's weak and it doesn't feel very real. What feels real is everything else in life that seems to be happening around you. But this is just small. And so part of, part of becoming a Christian is, is being willing to say, Jesus is Lord. And this is not a private, small, meaningless part of my life. This is the defining reality of my life. Jesus is Lord. And then believing in your heart, trusting that God raised him from the dead. Trusting that all the, the good works that Jesus did were validated by his being resurrected. That he has come near to us, conquering Satan's sin and death. You believe that? Despite all your sin? Despite all your rebellious thoughts and words, all the gossip, all the slander, all the anger in your heart, all the impatience, all the pride, all the lust, all the impurity, all the greed, despite all of that, that's all the stuff that you'd write on your exam. Despite all that, if you trust Christ, you get His. And you're rescued. You're saved. You're delivered. You don't drown in sin, but you have life. That's how salvation comes. It comes by faith. Quicker now, what salvation promises what salvation promises. We're told this in verse 11. Verse 11 it says, For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Salvation promises that those who believe in Christ will not be put to shame. What does that mean? Well, put to shame has with it the idea of being disappointed or being filled with regret. 
It doesn't mean that people who believe won't be embarrassed by people around them who ridicule. It doesn't mean that people won't be mocked or tried to be shamed, just like Jesus was on the cross as he was crucified naked, and they said, Hail, King of the Jews. doesn't mean that we won't experience that, but what it means is that at the end of all of that, at the end of all the suffering, at the end of all the persecution, at the end of all the sneers, at the end of all the, you really believe that stuff, at the end of all of that, you won't be disappointed, you won't be ashamed, you will be triumphant, because if God is for you, who can be against you? Amen. You won't be ashamed. Now, listen, you'll face hardship. You'll face difficulty. You'll be called to lay down your life. You'll be called to pick up your cross. You'll be called to deny yourself. And in the end of all of it, you'll go, it's worth it. I get Jesus. That's what salvation promises. Not just that you get your sin forgiven, but also that you get Jesus. Relationship with the one who made you. That's what salvation promises. Fourth, who salvation is for. Who salvation is for. I love this verse. These verses, verse 12 and 13. Well, really in verse 11, you see it too. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Who is this for? Who is this salvation for? Who is this forgiveness of sin and blessing of knowing Christ and promise that you won't be disappointed? Who is that for? It's for everyone who calls. Why? Because Jesus is the Lord not just of the Jews. He's the Lord of all. This is for everyone who calls. This is for anyone who would call. This is why we stand boldly on the promise of the gospel that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe wouldn't perish but have eternal life. So here's the question. Will you come? Will you call? Will you call on Jesus? Will you trust him? Will you confess that he is king? There's a passage at the end of chapter 10. We'll hit it in a couple weeks. All right, actually, I think next week. And it says that God says to Israel, I, I held out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. Get this, that, that's God. God is, God is holding out his hands. Right, so many people see this sort of pictured as Jesus holds out his hands on the cross and says, come, come to me, call out to me. Will you come? Will you call? Will you trust him? Will you say, my entrance exam isn't going to do it. I need his. Listen, if you sense that that, that is what you want, with the full conviction of God's word, I can tell you that is God's spirit moving in you. And I want to give you an opportunity now, before we head into a time of communion, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that. So I'm going to ask all of us to close our eyes and bow our heads, and we're going to have a time of of prayer here. And if you know the Lord, I'd ask you to be praying uh, for those around you who God is moving in their life. And if you right now sense that God is calling you where you say, I want Jesus. 
I want to have my sin forgiven. I'm tired of living my way. I'm tired of doing my thing. And I want to lead you in a, in a prayer. And listen, there's nothing magical about this prayer. There's, this isn't a special incantation that earns anything or gets anything. This is just an example of, of, of if what's going on in your heart is true, how you, how you come to faith in Christ. And so if you would pray this with me, if this represents your heart, and you can call on the name of the Lord. Let's call on him. Father in heaven, thank you for the offer of the gospel. Thank you for the promise that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And God, you have made me. You have made me to love and to serve you. And I have loved and served myself. I've loved and served many other things. God, I've sinned with my words. And I've sinned with my heart. And I've sinned with my mind. And I've sinned with my hands. And I've sinned with my feet. And I've sinned in countless ways. And the wages of that sin is death. And I thank you that Jesus died in my place and then rose victorious as Lord of all. And I'm putting my trust in him. God, forgive me. God, cleanse me. God, make me new. God, thank you that you come near and thank you that you save. I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As I said, there's nothing magic about that, those words. But that represents the desire of your heart. You're calling on the name of the Lord and you're told you can be saved. I'm going to lead us now in a time of communion and a time of response. And uh, I'm going to ask the ushers to start preparing the communion elements and to pass these out in just a moment. But we're going to respond to this. This is a, a tangible way to, to respond to God's grace and to God's goodness to us. And it's so interesting to me how God gives us these tangible things. And so uh, if, if you have trusted Christ in the past or today even for the first time, we want to invite you to celebrate and to remember what Jesus did in a tangible way. And so in a few moments, the ushers will come and they'll pass out to you uh, bread representing the body of Jesus, the, the perfect, righteous obedience of Christ credited to you. And they'll also pass out the cup of juice representing Jesus' blood, that it was Jesus' blood that covers our sin. It was Jesus who died in our place so that we could be brought near to God. And if you're a follower of Christ, whether you've been a follower of Christ for 60 seconds or for 60 years, we want you to take these elements and we want you to remember Christ. We want you to savor his sweetness and we want you to celebrate what he's done. Now, if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Christ and, and you still have not yet sensed God moving in this way, my prayer for you is that, that you would over time see the beauty and wonder of Christ. And if you don't see it yet and it's not true in your heart yet, we're so glad you're here. And please keep coming. But for now, just know, communion is for people who love the Lord Jesus. And if you're not there yet, just let the elements pass by and maybe begin to talk to God or ask him questions or come pray with one of us after the service. We would love to talk with you and help you in any way we can. But 
Uh, for now, I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. They'll pass out these elements. Once you have them, hold them until your heart is ready and then take communion on your own. And the band will lead us to respond.